The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you? Great, Father. Good to see you, of course. You too, yes. Back for another week, Father. I was hoping we could work through some of our emails mm-hmm. in the inbox. Um, and the first one is from a viewer who writes in and asks if Father Jenkins has anywhere discussed why the Society of St. Pius X uses the 1962 Missal and not the older Missal. Uh, he asks if the SSPX ever used the older Missal or have they always used the 1962 Missal? And why does Father Jenkins think they use and defend this Missal, which is lacking so much? Well, I know something uh, about this. Uh, I don't know the whole story, I'm sure, but what I do know, uh, I think, is relevant to the question, and that has to do with a certain history of the Society of St. Pius X. Uh, when, I, when I arrived uh, at Acone, um, I was told that the English-speaking provinces of the Society of St. Pius X used the pre John the Twenty Third Missal, and that the um, the the non English speaking parts, especially the French areas, uh, used the early changes of sixty and sixty two, and that this was actually explicitly agreed upon. I was told that the leadership of the Saudi at that point, uh, ultimately Archbishop Lefebvre had agreed that in the, in the English-speaking world that the priests would use the pre-John Twenty-Third liturgy. Um, that endured, actually, uh, that endured all the way to 1982. Um, so, in fact, I can, I can say this, that the priests, the English-speaking priests, uh, in uh, England, in the United States of America, all used the and Canada, as far as I know, all used the pre-John the Twenty-Third. John the Twenty-Third came in in 1958, as you know. So it was the pre-John the Twenty-Third liturgy. It was actually the pre-1955-54, even, with the changes that were wrought in the Holy Week ceremonies, especially the Sacred Triduum, under Pius XII. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used the, the old traditional Holy Week ceremonies prior to the re- so-called Reform than of the Holy Week ceremonies. Um, now, that changed rather abruptly when in 1982, Archbishop Lefebvre came to the States and told us that we had to use the uh, early changes of John the Twenty-Third in the breviary. Changes that wouldn't really have affected uh, the lay people, uh, changes that they might not have even been aware of had they not you know, heard, learned about it as someone told them. Because the lay people generally don't pray the breviary, and they certainly don't pray the breviary with the priests and seminarians of the Society of St. Pius X. But we were told that we had to switch from the pre-John the Twenty-Third breviary, uh, and we had to uh, accept the early changes in the praying of the breviary. And I, I spoke with Archbishop Lefebvre about this, and I said, you know, Monsieur, the next logical step is going to be required that we take the 1962 changes of John the Twenty-Third, because the divine office and the mass should um, coincide, you know, they should uh, harmonize with each other. So, you know, th- this will leave us uh, adopting the John the Twenty Third changes in the breviary, uh, but not the changes in the in the mass. And he said, No, 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 it, uh, just the liturgy, just the just the the divine office for the time being. And that's as far as he would go. Well, sure enough, within the year, Monsignor Lefebvre returned and said, now I need you to accept the 1962 changes in the Mass also. At least 
I need you to accept those changes in the seminary. Uh, he said, you don't have to introduce those changes in the missions. And the reason we understood why we would have to accept those changes in the seminary, but not in the missions, is because in the missions, people would notice the changes, and they'd be very alarmed by them. Whereas in the seminary, the seminarians were going to be trained in the 1962 changes, so when they were ordained, they were accustomed to using the 1962 changes, and that would be the norm for them from that time on. So the, the process actually was one of gradually changing the Society of St. Pius X. Um, actually, as I say, there, there was even a, a division initially when I first arrived at Econ in the early 70s, because the European, I, I would say the, the continental uh, European priests, the clergy, used the early changes in the breviary, and in England and in the United States of America, we did not. And when we asked Monsignor Lefebvre back in 1982, why, why are we making these changes to the divine office? And he said, so that when the priests come from Europe um, uh, to America, when the American priests go to Europe, they don't find that difference, that kind of a dichotomy between the, uh, the two. Mm -hmm. um, and it had not, as far as I know, no, been a problem before, so we were surprised uh, why it, it was becoming an issue. We didn't know. But we found out later that the real reason for these changes was that was Monsignor Lefebvre was involved in negotiations with the Vatican, with the modernists in the Vatican. There were three cardinals who had been appointed to work, to meet with Archbishop Lefebvre and try to work out some kind of a, an arrangement, which ultimately was called a protocol, so that uh, the modernists in the Vatican could recognize the Society of St. Pius X, uh, St. Pius X society would recognize the legitimacy of the modernists in the Vatican. And um, among the terms of that rapprochement between the two was that the society accept the early changes of John XXIII, I guess as a token of goodwill or something, and acknowledge that these things are perfectly legitimate. So uh, in any case, you know how that ended. That ended uh, about five years later with Monsignor Lefebvre uh, actually realizing that uh, he had been dealt with dishonestly by the modernists in the Vatican, which is exactly what you'd expect. Uh, that they had agreed that they would approve uh, Archbishop Lefebvre consecrating a bishop for the Society of St. Pius X, and then went after the protocol was agreed upon and signed, and practically before the ink was dried, they showed that they had no intention of having Archbishop Lefebvre consecrate a bishop for the Society <clears throat> at that time. Uh, and he realized that they, the whole thing had been an effort to kind of string things along. Uh, Monsieur Lefebvre, you know, within three years of that, was dead of cancer, God rest his soul. <coughs> Perhaps they knew that he was ill. Perhaps they were just waiting for him to die. I think, I think something Archbishop Lefebvre subsequently said indicated that that's how he read their actions and their real intentions. <coughs> so in any case... Um, but that's, that's how the Society of St. Pius X came to universally adopt the 1962 changes. That the 1962 changes, the early changes of 60 and 62, were not initially part of the formula uh, that we were all bound to in the society. But, um, but they came to be adopted and imposed in the process of this effort to uh, works out some kind of uh, an arrangement, uh, a protocol, and a, a deal with the modernists in the Vatican. Mm -hmm. uh, did Archbishop Lefebvre ever reverse it? No, he never did. Uh, by that time, people who opposed it had been shown the door in the society, and everyone, I think all the clergy in the society, um, have just had accepted the 1962 changes, so... I don't know that Monsieur Lefebvre saw uh, an enormous problem with them, with the uh, 1962 changes. I believe he saw some problem with them. Um, but remember, Vatican II had not yet met. Uh, the first document of the Council of Sacramentum, Sacrosanctum Concilium had not yet appeared regarding the litur liturgy. 
And uh, certainly when uh, the Vatican Council met and talked about the liturgy, uh, Monsignor Lefebvre certainly saw there were problems at that point. Mm-hmm. Father, not, not to get too far afield, but um, why? Uh, what is the problem with the, with the 1962 missile? Well, there are those who simply say, oh, it's not that significant. The changes very minor, uh, were not that significant. I mean, there are people who attend the 1962 liturgy as offered by a pious the 10th priest, SSPX priest, uh, who might come to a mass offered by a, a priest of our society, St. Pius V, and they might not even notice the difference. Right. But if they're, not paying, if they're not really paying attention, they wouldn't notice the difference. If they're accustomed to using the missile uh, and using the entire missile for each Sunday mass and, and weekday mass, then they would notice a difference. If they were conversant with the changes of John the Twenty-Third, they would see that there were some interesting things going on. Especially if they went to an SSPX liturgy, they would they would say, "Okay, well, they're using some of the changes of John the Twenty-Third in 1962, but not other changes." And why is that? Why are they saying, "Yes, we're following the 1962 missile, except when we don't"? <laughs> no. Uh, an example of that would be when it comes time for the administering of Holy Communion to the laity. Um, if they were really following the John the Twenty Third changes, they wouldn't have the confitior prayed by the servers at that point. But um, they have it. But they have the servers pray the confitior. And uh, at one point, I, I know someone asked one of the priests, if not Monsieur Lefebvre himself, but at least one of the priests. Well, why do you say you're following the 1962 missile of John the Twenty-Third, and yet you still retain the confitior before the priest administers Holy Communion to the people? And the answer was, well, the people would notice that, and it, they'd be alarmed if it wasn't prayed. It would it would disturb them. So we go ahead and have to pray that for them, you know, to keep them calm, <laughs> you know. And of course, my question would be, then why do you deceive them into thinking you're using the John the Twenty-Third changes yeah. when you will use some of the changes but not all of them? And at the same time, you're telling them, well, we're following the authority of John the Twenty-Third because he was a true pope, except when we don't. We don't. <laughs> they would like the changes that he made. So, again, I mean, this gets back to the very ethos and pathos of the Society of St. Pius X. Uh, problems we brought up back in 1983. Um, um, and uh, at that time, Monsignor Lefebvre, when we, when we brought these problems up to Archbishop Lefebvre, we didn't bring them up in a threatening way. You know, we just brought up the problems, the things that concerned us. Uh, and we were told to leave. At first we, th- we thought perhaps Monsieur Lefebvre was offended by what we'd said, but then we found out, no, uh, what was going on was negotiations with the Vatican, and that's why it, uh, it seemed necessary that we had to be put out of the society because we were going to be an obstacle to those negotiations. And as it turns out, uh, we, we, as soon as we realized there were these negotiations going on, we thought, well, the modernists are not going to deal honestly with Monsieur Lefebvre. And we knew also that Archbishop Lefebvre was a very brilliant man and a very shrewd man. And, but he was also a very kind and very, um, well, he was a member of the Vatican diplomatic corps and he was a genuine diplomat. He wasn't just basically uh, a negotiator trying to, you know, uh, what should I say, uh, overcome one side like a salesman. His love was for the church, his love for Christ, his love for the souls. And I think Archbishop Lefebvre entered it with, not with any illusions, but with goodwill. That he really thought that this is something that he needs to do for the sake of the souls of the people to try to find a way uh, to uphold Catholic tradition and in the hopes that perhaps they, they would deal with him honestly, although he certainly was no, he, he was no fool at all. I mean, he was a very, very uh, brilliant man, as I say, and a, a man who had a great love for our Lord, the Church, and for souls. So I, I can't say that he necessarily was shocked when it, it, all the signs sealed and delivered and he found that they did not uh, deal honestly with him. Um, but 
he was right in this. Uh, he knew that we would not uh, favor these negotiations uh, because we did not trust the modernists and would not trust them, and we wouldn't want to be changing the way we offer Mass or pray the Divine Office in order to accommodate them and suit them. And so uh, I guess Archbishop have realized, well, this process can not go forward uh, if we have priests who are going to uh, object. And so when we objected to the things we said in 1983 uh, about the marriage annulments and all the rest, I think Archbishop have realized we were going to be an obstacle to any, uh, shall we say, um, deal with the modernists. You know? And so it, is, it was true, it would be. We would have been then, and we would still would be now. But in any case, um, there are changes in the 1962 Missal of John the 23rd. Changes to the calendar, feast days were changed, and so on. And uh, I, even even apart from the the particular changes that were made, there is the the reason given for these changes, and the reason given for these changes were all humanistic, all to accommodate human uh, naturalistic frailties. And um, uh, so we realized that these reasons to change the liturgy are not Catholic reasons. So we didn't want to involve ourselves in any way with those early changes of John the 23rd, because when the modernists tell you this is the justification for making these changes, and you realize the justification established principles that are anti-Catholic. You just can't go along with it. So some of the today might look at these early changes and say, well, they're not so bad, especially in light of the Novus Ordo. I mean, these things are rather tame. And then you realize, well, wait a minute. These things were all part of a process. They were all part of the same process of employing the same principles to arrive at the same end, and that's the Novus Ordo. These changes were just steps on the way to the Novus Ordo. Why would we take them? And when we do, if we did accept them, wouldn't be some, we somehow be validating the principles that justified these changes that took us all the way to the Novus Ordo anyway? So we, we said we can't justify these evil non-Catholic principles by accepting these early changes that were made on the basis of those false ideas. And that's, that's what we said at the time, and that's what we still say, too. So we, we don't find those, uh, you know, people talk about the traditional Mass um, as a kind of a, a unitary thing. They talk about the, the Latin Mass, you know, en gros, but they don't distinguish between uh, the true traditional Roman Rite before the changes came in and this, the, the, the series of stages of the changes that led up to the new Mass. But they, but it was still in Latin time, you know, and they're making a mistake in not distinguishing that and just wanting to tap in at a certain point in the, in the revolutionary process. Our position is go back before the revolutionary process began, go back before the modernists got their filthy mitts on the liturgy and did violence to it and, you know, use the Catholic liturgy as it was before the modernists defiled it mm -hmm. or began their defilement. Mm -hmm. So... I mean, the particulars of the differences between the 1962 uh, changes of John the 23rd and so on, um, those are readily available to anybody who wants to search for them. Right. So, right. I mean, one could go down the line, but I think it's important to realize it's the principles behind those changes that is really, uh, those principles are deadly, okay. deadly to divine worship. Okay. Well, Father, this uh, leads nicely into a related question that we had concerning Archbishop Lefebvre. Had a viewer who said they've um, been trying to research Archbishop Lefebvre's opinions on Sacrosanctum Concilium and Dignitatis Humanae, and uh, they found it rather vague. And so, Father Jenkins, could you enumerate Archbishop Lefebvre's per any particular objections to these two documents, please? Well, uh, concerning Sacrosanctum Concilium, I can't tell you directly what Archbishop Lefebvre's thought is on the subject. I mean, there, there are writings by him and about him that no doubt detail that his assessment of that first great document of Vatican II and all the debate going on there about it. Um, I can tell you firsthand of a conversation I had with Monsignor Lefebvre concerning Dignitatis Humanae Personae, the, the last 
great document, right? Decree of Vatican II. It was actually um, promulgated December 7th, 1965, the day before the council ended. That's the document on religious liberty. And uh, I'd mentioned to Archbishop Pat at one point, uh, a concern that I had about that document is whether it was explicitly heretical. <clears throat> and uh, he was willing to listen to what I had to say, and I appreciate that, because, you know, he was truly a theologian and, uh, and uh, truly a, you know, a great patriarch, I think, in terms of the traditional, traditional Catholic clergy, and I had the utmost respect for him. So I, I mentioned to him, you know, citing a couple of passages from uh, the document on religious liberty, and also that a couple of passages from Apostolic Cicure of Pope uh, Pius IX, in which he talked about uh, religious indifferentism as being against the teaching of sacred scripture, the teaching of the church, and especially the, the fathers of the church. And I said, but if you go to the Code of Canon Law, it says that if something is uh, taught by the church as being contrary to sacred scripture, and contrary to sacred tradition, notably the fathers of the unanimous uh, teaching of the fathers of church, it's actually heretical by definition. And uh, I said, well, that's, isn't that what Dinitati uh, Sumale Personi, the council's document on religious liberty, doesn't it do that, exactly that? Uh, doesn't it contradict what Pope Pius IX said was the, t the infallible teaching of the church drawn from the sacred scripture, the, the church's tradition, notably the teaching of the fathers. And Archbishop Lefebvre's response to that was, well, it's implicit. It's implicit in the document in Utati Somali Perasone. So he said it's not an explicit heresy, but it's implicitly contained. And uh, I, I just took that because of my respect for Archbishop Lefebvre. I thought I'd like to have a further discussion with Monsignor Lefebvre about that very question then. Um, whether it was explicit or implicit, you know, but I, you know, I, I certainly wasn't going to, um, you know, argue the point at that point and, 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 you know, further it, but I thought it would be really interesting to be able to continue that and to get more information from Monsieur Lefebvre about his thought, about why he thought it was implicit and not explicit. In any case, uh, there are those who think that the contradiction is explicit and that it is explicitly heretical. So there are those who think otherwise, but uh, that's all the more reason why I'd like to have had a further discussion with Monsieur Lefebvre, which never took place, actually. Uh, with regard to Sacrosanctum Sanctum Concilium, um, I don't know, uh, Monsieur Lefebvre himself never expressed it to me personally, and I don't recall having him spoken about it, speak, having him, heard him speak about it to assemblies. I mean, we did, when he was president at Econ, meet with him uh, weekly. He addressed all the seminarians. I found it very interesting, very edifying. Um, uh, I found, uh, I was very impressed with the humility with which he spoke, with the, the simplicity with which he spoke, really. And but with the, the devotion that he, with which he spoke, too, I found it very, very edifying. And, um, you know, he was even talking about... Um, at one point, about how you know certain members of the Society of Saint Pius X had, had kind of made their peace with the modernists in Rome, or certain other traditional groups had uh, abandoned the effort, you know, and decided to cast their lot in with modernist Rome. And Monsignor Lefebvre said, uh, "Even if all of you were to leave," he said, "I will still be here." He said, I will still remain and I will do what I believe is the right thing to do, even whether anyone stands with me or not, because I believe this is the right thing to do. So um, I, all of these lectures uh, were in French, of course. So, uh, you know, just the way he spoke, the simplicity of the French was so easy to understand, so easy to follow. I was very impressed by it. But looking at Sacro Sanctum Concilium, I can uh, pretty much piece together uh, what I think would be an, an accurate uh, account of Archbishop Lefebvre, how Monsieur Lefebvre would assess what the council was. Now notice, this is my speaking. This is my assessment. This is not coming from him. People can examine writings about Monsieur Lefebvre, 
um, not by detractors so much, but by those who can actually, or close to him, who can speak more authoritatively than I can about it. People can actually read writings uh, by him, no doubt, which he addresses this very question. But with regard to Sacro Sanctum Concilium, we're talking about the first major document approved by uh, Paul VI for Vatican II. This was approved already December 4th, 1963, so roughly almost two years to the day before the last document on religious liberty, right? And on December 4th, 1963, Paul VI promulgated uh, solemnly Sacro Sanctum Concilium the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. <coughs> now, if you read through this Constitution, um, it was originally in Latin. There are th authorized translations available. I have one here in front of me from the Vatican's own website. Um, one realize you're looking at the very first attempt of the modernists to turn the Council entirely under their control. Okay, And their first target was the liturgy. They wanted to attack the liturgy first. That's a very interesting choice they made. Is they thought that the liturgy was kind of low-hanging fruit that they could get to, like the, like the, the, the apple in the garden, you know? <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, later on, the modernists were heard to remark that they wished they waited till the end of the council to address the liturgy because it could have been much more radical. Because the council became increasingly radical as it went on. So they lamented the fact that they uh, took care of this question of the liturgy to begin with and didn't wait till the end. But the document they produced was radical enough, really. I mean, they start out by talking about the importance of the liturgy and the life of the church. Uh, it expresses the real nature of the church, the mystery of Christ. I mean, what they say here in the beginning is true about the sacred liturgy. There's no doubt about it. Uh, they talk about uh, this document applying only to the, the Roman rite, the Latin rite of the Church. When I say Latin rite, there are multiple Latin rites of the Gallican rites, but we're talking about here the Roman rite of the Church, which is the largest, and the one that you see the priest using when he's using the Missale Romanum, he's using the Latin rite, of the, uh, the Roman rite of the Church, okay? And it says in the beginning that whatever we do, we have to do it in light of sound tradition, they say. Faithful obedience to tradition. That's what they're saying here in the beginning of this document. We have to follow Catholic tradition and be faithful to Catholic tradition, no matter what we do or say about the liturgy. Okay, so it sounds good for somebody reading it just out of the, out of the uh, batter's box. You know, they say, okay, it sounds like it's going to be Catholic. But then, of course, as the document evolves, I mean, I can see fathers, the Catholic bishops who were present there reading this at first and saying, okay, this doesn't sound too bad. Okay. But then, wait, you know, because it takes a turn here. And uh, anyway, they say that the liturgy, the worship of God on earth is a foretaste of the worship of God in heaven. Okay? The saints in heaven. I mean, this is all perfectly Catholic material. And uh, they say in this document, I'm not going to read the whole thing, they talk about people coming to, to the sacred liturgy with the proper dispositions uh, of faith, hope, and charity, and love for God, and making it truly an act of worship. They talk about the, the, this communal act of worship uh, where the whole church unites, you know, in an adoration of God here on earth. But they also talk about the popular devotions of the people and how important they are in the people's prayer life. Again, you know, we'd say, yes, well, this is, they got that right here. Then they go into the idea of having the fully conscious, active participation. And that active participation became like a buzzword for them, you know, like active participation. Well, the question came up, well, how can they have active participation if they have it in Latin? Because the people don't know Latin. Now the question became, how do we break down the barriers against active participation? You, even, even when St. Pius X issued the motu proprio um, on the uh, sacred music in the Mass, in 1903, he didn't wait very long for that. Uh, you could see that it was something very much on his mind, even as a cardinal. The music that was being used at Mass being very worldly, bombastic, uh, syrupy, you know, uh, 
Uh, he wanted to make it dignified. And so in his writing on the sacred liturgy, really the first official statement he made, Pope Pius X in 1903, <laughs> he talked about the necessity of the people being edified by the music. Well, sure enough, when the modernists got in there and started adding subtitles, they added the title to, des to describe what St. Pius X was saying, a participatio act actuosa. Again, they wanted to get this active participation and say, oh, look, St. Pius X was talking about the need for active participation back in 1903, as though it was his idea, as though what they understood by active participation was actually originated by him, which is absolutely false, okay? But they wanted this idea of active participation to be like the, the battering ram that they used to strike down all of the, well, the entire Roman rite of the Mass, and that's what they did. So it, they, they go on to talk about the need for instruction of the clergy in the liturgy, and then the instruction about the laity in the, in the liturgy. But they get to the point where uh, they start talking about the general norms. Okay, now here in the general norms, you find where they start making the changes. They start militating for changes. Number 23 in this document talks about, well, it says that sound tradition may be retained. Sounds good. And yet the way remain open to legitimate progress. Now we're talking about progress, okay. He says, careful investigation is always to be made into each part of the liturgy which is to be revised. So now they're talking explicitly about revising liturgy. Revising liturgy. And this becomes the whole theme from that moment on. We have to revise this liturgy. This is the drumbeat, okay. They talk about the need to investigate this. And they say there must be no innovations unless the good of the church genuinely and certainly requires them. So no innovations unless the church genuinely and ser seriously requires these changes for its own good. And they must take, take care that new forms adopted should in some way grow organically from the forms already existing. Okay, so the, any new changes that came out, they weren't talking about creating a new liturgy. They were just talking about changes within the existing liturgy. And they said that whatever changes they made had to kind of come naturally out of the liturgy that existed. See, so one might say, well, this is kind of risky here, but, you know, they're giving caveats and saying, well, we're not tolling for a new liturgy here. Then they go on and talk about the need for sacred scripture to be used in the new liturgy, which is actually leaning more and more away from the prayers of the church, the orations and so on, and more toward the Protestant liturgy. Okay, the idea that scripture is all we've got, that's what we go by, that's what we have to have as our worship. So they're actually ten trending now a certain way. Then in number 25, they say this, 25 consists of one sentence. The liturgical books are to be revised as soon as possible. So they've gone from saying that sound tradition may be retained, and yet the way remain open to legitimate progress. Investigation must carefully be made of these things. That's in 23. Then just actually two very brief paragraphs later, they have one sentence, number 25. The liturgical books are to be revised as soon as possible. Now how does that allow for careful investigation, theologically, historically, and pastorally. You see the contradictions that are going on here? Uh, let's be very careful, but let's do it as fast as we can. Let's make these changes. Experts are to be employed. We see how important the experts are, don't we? We see experts in medicine. We see experts in law. We see all these wonderful experts coming out with all these wonderful things. <clears throat> but Vatican II was calling for this already, the periti. The periti are supposed to guide everything. They are actually supposed to be the new magisterium. The experts are supposed to tell us what we need to do. <clears throat> they are to be employed in the task. Bishops are to be consulted from various parts of the world. Experts are to be employed in the task, and bishops are to be consulted. It's like, that's the role of bishops? Okay. <laughs> One sentence, number 25. That's where they, they strike this. They strike out into the deep <laughs> with these changes. And, uh, I mean, from then on in, they talk about the things that they want to bring in, and they're all radical things. Okay, they say here, 
Although the sacred liturgy is above all things the worship of the divine majesty, although, that's true, it likewise contains much instruction for the faithful. So now we have to get into the question, how are we going to instruct the faithful? The liturgy as a means of instruction. Almost as though we're going to take what they called in the old days the, the, the mass of the catechumens, and we're going to focus on that now. You know, as a means of instruction, like that is going to be our, our, our focal point now. And uh, so this is where they, they even go on in number 36 to say, a particular law remaining in force, the use of the Latin language is to be preserved in the Latin rite. Sounds good, right? And so those who are conservative Novus Ordo people point to that and say, oh, look, Vatican II called for the continuation of Latin. Uh, yeah, in, in number 36, uh, para, in the paragraph 36, number one, they said that. But read paragraph uh, number two. And it says, since the use of the mother tongue in mass or the administration of the sacraments or other parts of liturgy frequently may have great advantage to the people, the limits of its employment may be extended. You see? Now, there you go. Talk about an open-ended, you know, blank check, right? And this is what they give. And then they go on to appoint what they call the competent territorial ecclesiastical authority. Now, what's that? I mean, you go back and you search the documents of the church for that phrase, the competent territorial ecclesiastical authority now having the right to decide these things about Latin. Uh, And even about, it goes on to say, introducing elements of pagan liturgical philosophical practices. Now the competent territorial ecclesiastical authority now has uh, power to decide these things, about what these things of indigenous, they don't mention indigenous cultures, but they're actually talking explicitly about non-Christian rites uh, being part of the, the local culture, being considered for inclusion into the local liturgy. So you see how all of the, the seeds for all of this were sowed in this document. Everything we saw come out. Everything we're seeing with Francis, the seeds were sown right here. Francis is the, Francis is the fruit. Excuse me. But Francis is the fruit of Vatican II, so to speak. Yeah, excuse me, this question. <laughs> because he definitely is the flowering of Vatican II and the principles given here. And over and over again, the competent territory, territorial ecclesiastical authority. I mean, who can not see in this a foundation for Francis's synodal church that even has a worldwide synods going on to talk about synodality? Right? to discover its new synodality. That's what he's got going on right now. So, reading through this, one can easily see that Archbishop Lefebvre, who was truly a missionary, he was the missionary's missionary in all of French-speaking Africa, uh, based in Dakar, that he understood very well the necessity of the traditional liturgy, and he saw the import of this document and how dangerous it was. Nonetheless, I think Archbishop Lefebvre was one of the bishops who did approve of it. I don't know what the vote was on this. I have to go back to the Council Day book and check the the results of the vote. But I I think Monsignor Lefebvre himself approved of this on the basis of his somewhat, some might say, naive belief that they would never uh, misuse this, that uh, they will always apply this in a Catholic way, I don't think he ever foresaw what they would do with it. Um, I just think, I don't think it was naivete on his part. I think it was just a matter of um, of his personal goodwill. I just don't think he could necessarily conceive of somebody being so duplicitous. In other words, I don't think he could see conceive of thinking like a modernist. I don't think he could really conceive of thinking like a modernist. Um even to his dying day, and I, I must say I didn't have any contact with him for the last you know, 10 years of his life, but uh, up to then I could certainly see that he was, would be just mystified by the thinking of the modernists. Like, how can they do these things? How can they say these things? You go back and listen to his, his uh, uh, sermons, 
And, uh, you know, I could hear him saying, je suis stupéfier about these things. You know, how could they do these things? I'm shocked, amazed, you know, how they could be saying these things. Um, because I don't think he had a modernist bone in his body, not a modernist cell in his brain. I don't think he had a trace of modernism in his faith. <clears throat> and for those who... Uh, for those who don't, they are, well, they, 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 the modernist uh, being so utterly duplicitous can take advantage of that. Good faith. But now that we see what they're up to, now we see, and now we see uh, Archbishop Vigano speaking very clearly and condemning uh, the modernism. The trouble, Monsignor Vigano is speaking out very boldly about what these people have done, in some ways, even more boldly than anything Archbishop of himself had said. But we have the advantage, if you call it that, of being 20 years on, actually, from 1988, 1991, when Archbishop of died, God rest his soul, as I say, until this moment. I mean, we're talking about essentially 30 years, right? Mm -hmm. uh, just over 30 years since Monsignor Lefebvre died. And uh, we have all that's happened in the meantime. And from that vantage point, from this vantage point, Archbishop Vigano is speaking. And yet, one great difference is that Archbishop Lefebvre actually proposed a practical solution and actually began to fight for the traditional faith and the traditional mass and exerted all his energies to actually do something practical for the practice of the traditional Catholic religion. And Archbishop Vigano of the Novosoro, I mean, he, I think he was ordained Novosoro, and I think he was consecrated Novosoro, uh, has not, as far as I know, undertaken any real practical action. And maybe he realizes, having been ordained and consecrated Novosoro, that poses a problem. Um, I don't know where, where his thinking is on that, but he certainly has not organized any real resistance to this. He's called for it, but... Uh, I think that is a major difference between Monsignor Lefebvre and Archbishop Vigano, and, and I think there's no doubt about it that Monsignor Lefebvre deserves our gratitude to this day for putting his self on the line for this, because I know it must have been very, very difficult for him. Mm -hmm. I think, Father, what you say is absolutely true about Archbishop Lefebvre. You know, we recently did a, um, a program, maybe two, where we talked about the last interview that he gave, and he talked in there about oh, there how you he... Are, he, um, you know, had, had felt that he perhaps uh, went too far in his dealings with the modernists, and so he kind of saw after, you know, after his, his uh, attempt at dealing with them that they were deceitful, as you say, and uh, he realized that he went too far. So, I mean, I think that would be proof positive that he... Uh, he that he himself had say that's about it. But there's no doubt in my mind that what he did, he did in good faith. Yeah. So, yeah. Believing it was the right thing to do at the time. Absolutely. You know, some people have suggested, uh, and you're among them, that we have revived the old Roman Catholic forums. We used to get uh, speakers together and, you know, once a year have two or three days of uh, uh, conferences given. And uh, I'd like to see that happen because uh, we need to stay on track. And these days it's very difficult. There's so many voices out there that are calling for so many different false remedies, I think, and false responses that they're calling for reactions to modernism they're not calling for responses to it but uh, Russia is spreading here errors out the world no doubt and the modernists are a big part of that and they need to be opposed and we need to have a uh, forum on the faith and I, I have heard people say that you're the most recent one and I think we need to revive those okay. and may, perhaps our viewers would have something to say about that but anyway, I miss, uh, you know, so far I, I know we've only really addressed two of the questions here, but I think there are meteor questions here. Yes, yes. Well, Father, I did just want to ask this one. Good. Um, you can ask a few more. I'll try to be brief. Okay, Father. <laughs> Father, um, do you remember, this viewer asks, when the Vatican was struck by lightning? Uh, he said when Francis was voted to be Pope. And what do you make of that? Um, well, do I remember that? I remember the, the St. Peter's being struck by lightning. Mm -hmm. The Dome of St. Peter's, probably the cross on the top of the dome, being struck by lightning twice on the day that Benedict resigned. I think, so, yeah. I think that's true, right? I, think I remember so. that correctly. 
I don't recall um, clearly the fact that it was struck again by lightning on the day that Francis was chosen um, by the modernists, by the St. Gallen Mafia and, and, the, and the rest of them. I don't recall that. But uh, anyway, the person is asking that question for a reason, though, I suppose. Not just to know if I remember the, the, the yeah, event, yeah. but they have something in <clears throat> what, mind. What do you make of it? Oh, the fact that uh, St. Peter's was yeah. struck by lightning? Um, well, what can one say? What comes to mind? You know, lightning, you think about, what is it, St. Mark chapter 10, is it? St. Mark chapter 10 or St. Luke chapter 10? About our Lord saying, I saw Satan, I saw Lucifer falling as lightning from heaven. Um, uh, you know, that, that comes to mind, just the whole idea of lightning striking, coming down and striking. Uh, there are those who say it was a sign from heaven that something dramatic and and uh, catast catastrophic was happening, right? Uh, that there was a this was a major turning point somewhere along the line. Well, I don't think it was a major turning point in terms of modernism, because all the way through the line, John the twenty third, Paul the sixth, John Paul the second, Benedict sixteenth, they all have actually towed the modernist line in practice. Now, okay. And um, so, I mean, the men, the men who chose Francis were put in place by John the 23rd, Paul the 6th, John Paul the 2nd, Benedict XVI. These are the ones who chose Francis, okay? Because he was expected to complete what they'd begun in, in earnest at Vatican II. He was supposed to bring Vatican II to its full term. Okay, complete revolutionizing the church into something completely unrecognizable. So, I mean, if somebody were to say, well, see, this is the point that they compelled Benedict to resign because he was so Catholic and we get Francis instead, if that, that wasn't, that, that to my mind was not the case. Yeah. Um, because I don't consider Benedict to be conservative. I consider him to be a conservative Novus Ordo but not a, a traditional Catholic, pontiff, certainly. Um, I don't know, I, I, I don't know what you can speculate. You can speculate as to the meaning of it, really. Um, do I think it was significant for the, for St. Peter is to be struck twice on the same day. I don't know that that had ever happened before. I mean, the lightning had struck St. Peter's down before. There's a lightning rod there, right, on the top of the cross, right? That lightning rod is there for a reason, right? One might think, well, the lightning rod is there to, uh, what, attract the lightning or to dispel the lightning. Well, what lightning rods are put there for is to conduct the charge that accumulates around them in the atmosphere, to conduct that charge into the ground, okay? We, that's what we call grounding the electric, electric, electrical current, right? and therefore lessen the likelihood of an actual electrical strike, okay? It's meant, and if it is struck by lightning, it is meant to conduct the, the strength of the lightning bolt then into the ground too and ground it there and protect the rest of the edifice. Um, so, you know, the fact that they have this lightning rod up there, and they usually have it on the highest point within a given area because that's where the electrical charge is the most dangerous, and that's where the lightning is likely to strike. So the fact that there's a lightning rod up there would mean, well, you know, we put that there for a reason. We expect that this is where the electrical charge is going to accumulate around the, the lightning rod, and you can bleed off that electrical charge by having this lightning rod go all the way down from the top and get nonstop down into the ground. Um, but also, they would expect that if a lightning did strike, that's what it would do. <clears throat> Nonetheless, I mean, you know, realizing the fact that, yes, this was the prudent thing to do. And when they built St. Peter's, they, no doubt, uh, I mean, back in 15, uh, back in 1622, when they finished building the new St. Peter's, <clears throat> I'm sure they were aware of, of this enough. At least, if not then, not long thereafter, they became aware of the need to put that up. So we shouldn't be surprised, in other words, that lightning would strike there, okay? I mean, just according to the laws of physics, you know, 
We shouldn't be surprised that lightning would strike. But I don't know if there was ever an occasion in the history of the church where this recorded there was there were two lightning strikes in such rapid succession. Okay? Uh, that would be quite unusual. Would I say that there is some kind of a divine message in that? I would be inclined to think yes, there would be. The trouble is you get five people in a room, you get ten different opinions of what it means. So um, do I think it was significant? Yeah, yes. Do I know what the significance was? I, I can't speak other than my own thoughts on the subject, and I can see it, see it meaning a variety of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the most important thing is the church is under attack, and not from heaven, but from hell, right? And God is making a statement here that something is happening, that he's, uh, that it's like an, a warning from heaven. I would take it as that. I would take it as a warning from heaven. You know, something else that came to mind, I, I know I don't want to make you regret asking the question, but when Paul VI was in power in the Vatican, remember that? 1963, John XXIII had died, Paul VI <clears throat> became resident in the Vatican, and um, even Malachi Martin writes about this in his book, The Keys of His Blood, page 6, 32, 33, 34. Um, well, to bypass quite a bit of this, Paul VI himself, um, as any given you know, uh, uh, pontiff, whether a true Catholic pontiff or a modernist pontiff of the Novus Ordo, would sit for a portrait. They have their portraits done. And there was a, a man who, uh, a German fellow, I think it was, who came to do a portrait of Paul VI. And um, at first it was kind of an unofficial portrait, but actually Paul VI gave him a space in the Vatican to work on this monumental portrait, like 10 feet tall, maybe four or five feet wide. And it was supposed to be a portrait of Paul VI. Some people remember that. It was actually featured in Smithsonian Magazine at one point, after it was finished. But it's available online even. One can look it up. Um, and this portrait of Paul VI developed gradually over time. I think it must have taken weeks, perhaps months to finish. I understand that Paul VI himself would come by periodically just to see how the progress was going. And uh, by the time it was done, it was literally a monstrosity. <clears throat> Even though it was a monstrosity, Paul VI actually said it reflected the condition of the church in our time. He's quoted as saying this monumental portrait of Paul VI represents well, accurately, the condition of the church in our time. And what does it show? Well, it shows the the, the inside, interior of the Basilica, St. Peter's Basilica, toppling, toppling to the ground like in an earthquake. All dislodged. It looks like kind of everything dislocated, like a Picasso. If you translated a Picasso from the, the, the lady with the six noses and the you know, two arms coming out of her ears, if you translated that to the building of St. Peter's, that's what it would look like. Everything is falling and crashing. The colors are very stark. It looks like there's an enormous storm going on, bringing down the basilica. And at the very bottom, uh, there's a little tiny face. And that little tiny face in white is Paul VI's portrait. So this whole, this massive can- canvas come down, comes down to all of this structure collapsing on this little face of Paul VI. And Paul VI has this demonic look on his face in this painting, and he's holding under his chin a dagger that is dripping with blood. And Paul VI commented, this accurately reflects the condition of the church in our time. People can go and check it out for themselves. In fact, we probably should post it on the website, because it was so shocking to see that, and to open up the the pages of Smithsonian Magazine back then and have the entire two pages open up to that, that portrait. And people must have been wondering what's going on. What's going on in the Smithsonian? What's going on in the Vatican? You know? I think people need to see that. I think our young people need to see it and realize there's something wrong with this. <clears throat> so anyway, um, again, when the lightning struck uh, St. Peter's, that, that too came to my mind because I think if people saw that portrait, 
they would understand why I associated that portrait with that lightning strike. <clears throat> or those lightning strikes. So anyway, well, Tom, uh, as you know, I can go on, but uh, <laughs> I won't. Uh, I know you have other questions there that are significant. Sure, Father. Maybe, maybe, could, do you think we can get one more in Maybe there? just one more. Um, Father, how can traditional Catholics hold true to the papacy when there is no pope to hold to? Well, uh, look, even apart from the question of Francis, okay, even apart from that, the church has been without living popes hundreds of times, right? In the course of her history, with the death of St. Peter, the church was without a pope, right? Uh, the clergy of Rome, then, who had been largely um, ordained by St. Peter, some perhaps by St. Paul too, then elected one of the clergy of Rome, Linus, Linus, to be the successor of Peter. And uh, so it was that when Linus died as a martyr, uh, there were days, weeks, for all we know, before another pope was selected. And so it went on, right? Pope after pope, the papacy remained. The office of the papacy remains, right? As an indelible part of our Catholic tradition, the office of the papacy remains, even when there is no living pope. And so, and the authority that Christ gave to the church remains in the church, even when there's no living pope. So, of course, it's not only possible, but it's absolutely necessary to hold to the papacy. Uh, whether there is a living pope on the throne of the papacy or not, it's absolutely necessary to hold to uh, the office of the papacy as Christ established it. And how do we do that? We know what the popes have taught. We know what they have left us, in a sense, canonized in Catholic tradition. And that's what we adhere to. That's what traditional Catholics do. That's why we're traditional Catholics. Because we are being faithful to the office of the papacy, as Christ established it, and as it has come down to us through the ages. Francis is not. And those who follow him, in his revolution, are not being faithful to the Catholic papacy. He wants to change it. In fact, he wants to annihilate it. He wants to substitute his own idea of the, of the Petrine office <clears throat> after his own admission likeness, right? He wants to style himself the successor, not just to Peter, he wants to style himself the successor of Christ himself, who has the power to remake the church in his own image and likeness. And uh, this is the Novus, the Novus Ordo Church is being remade in the image and likeness of Francis now. Uh, the Synodal Church, that's what it's all about. So, I mean, the question is a good question, but I mean, the answer, I think, I think it does have a good answer. That is, in, in holding fast to Catholic tradition, we are being faithful to the office of the papacy that doesn't die with one pope and, and be recreated with another one. The office is permanent. It's the work of Christ in the church. Men come and go. Individual popes come and go. The papacy does not come and go uh, in the sense that it is not of human creation or invention, and it cannot be destroyed by anyone, including Francis. It remains what it is. That's what you adhere to. That's what I adhere to. Absolutely. <clears throat> Father, anything else you'd like to add before we close? Oh, dangerous words, Tom. Well, I would just uh, encourage people to be faithful to Christ, to his church, to uh, faithful to the papacy, the real papacy, uh, by refusing to go along with this Nova Soto, um, uh modernist uh, creation in the modernist laboratory like some monster they piece together, right? The elements of worldliness, Freemasonry and all the rest. Yet they reject that. Um, this is not God uh, of God's creation. I mean, Frankenstein's created a monster, right? And so it is with these modernists. They are creating a monster, which is not the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ, but a substitute for that. And uh, so we, we need to hold fast to the true Holy Mother of the Church as she's come down to us through Catholic tradition. That's the work of the Holy Ghost. So I ask you uh, all to, uh, you know, attend 
Only the traditional mass refuse to go along with this. I mean, there are a lot of people out there who realize the evil of vaccines. But, you know, would that all those who realize the evil of vaccines would realize that the Novus Ordo liturgy is, is like the, the modernist version of the vaccine. Everybody has to get the vaccine. And once you're vaccinated, it doesn't go well for you, you know, faith-wise, you know. You have to escape from that. Fortunately, by the grace of God, there's an antidote to the modernist vaccine of the new, the new religion, the Novus Ordo, and that is going to be, of course, the traditional Catholic faith and its practice, the traditional Catholic religion, with the true mass, the sacraments, and so on. And I just beg people to find that, adhere to it with all your strength, because adhering to that is adhering to, to Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, in any way, also, by the way, we have uh, the Feast of All Saints. Well, we have the Feast of Christ the King coming up this Sunday, which, uh, of course, focuses on our Lord's kingship here in this world in the Church Militant. The very next day, Monday, we have the Feast of All Saints Day, which concerns Christ's lordship over all the saints in heaven, right? The Church Triumphant. The following day, we have All Saints Day, All Souls Day, right? Which refers to Christ himself and his dominion over the souls in purgatory of the church suffering. So in three successive days, the Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, we have the celebration of the entire church, suffer, uh, the church militant on earth, suffering in purgatory, and triumphant in heaven. A wonderful three days. And I encourage people to... Uh, to really contemplate this, meditate upon this this great this this great mystery <clears throat> of what Christ has done, you know, in, in giving us souls here on earth living this mortal moment of life, who still can already begin the life uh, everlasting life in sanctifying grace. The souls in purgatory have already been judged, and they do not yet have the beatific vision because they're. Uh, of course, the temporal punishment due to their sins is being taken care of there, but also their love for God is being purified there, and they know that they will see God in heaven someday. You, then you, you, of course, have the church triumphant where the saints are in the glory of God and actually sharing the everlasting life of the beatific vision with him. And this tremendous vision that the church has given us, that the scriptures have given us, uh, all of this, of course, is <clears throat> directed to that final consummation of time, history, uh, salvation, and mystery of redemption in the souls of the just and the sanctified being glorified by Christ in heaven. That's where we're all, hopefully, not just tending and trending, but laboring to, you know, to be faithful to our Lord to, to be there. So um, let's remember the saints in heaven. Let's ask them uh, to intercede for us earnestly. But let's also remember the souls in purgatory and remember the need, and not only the, the need, but the ability we have given to us by the church to gain the indulgence, totius quotius, as often as we do this, we can gain a plenary indulgence for souls in purgatory. The church has given us this power, and all we have to do is outwardly, we have to go into the church and we have to pray, or a cemetery, ideally, a consecrated cemetery, and pray the six Our Fathers and six Hail Marys and six Glory Bees to the Father. That's outwardly. But inwardly, we have to be in the state of grace. Uh, for the sake of plenary indulgence, we have to receive Holy Communion, make a good confession within a week's time, receive absolution. But we also have to have our wills free from any attachment to habits of even venial sin. Obviously, being in the state of grace requires that we be free from all taint of mortal sin. But for our plenary indulgence, we have to have more. We have to have our minds made up. And that is, with a firm purpose of amendment, even for habits of venial sin. Someone who tends to lose his temper, be lazy um, and slothful, somebody who has a tendency to be gluttonous and overeats and so on, uh, these are all examples that we might have of habits of venial sin. Somebody who gossips and spreads stories, you know, about other people, negative stories. Even though these might not raise to the level of mortal sin, they can be habits of venial sin. They're very displeasing to God. And we have to, in order to gain a plenary indulgence, we have to 
make up our minds against even the habits of our venial sins. So I encourage people to, uh, on November 2nd this year, to have so made the necessary decisions uh, that they can gain those plenary indulgences for the souls whom God wishes to uh, free from purgatory and take to himself an everlasting life. A great service, indeed, to God and to souls. So, so I will stop there. Okay. Thank you. That's to your relief. Thank you for being here tonight. Thanks for all that you do. I appreciate it. Certainly, Tom. May God bless you and all of our viewers, too. And please pray for the souls who are here on earth who are in need of uh, your prayers who are suffering, carrying some heavy cross. And please pray for uh, for the deceased. Recently, uh, you know, Teresa uh, Condit, we have uh, Yvonne Kramer, uh, Mike Lorenzano, Tim, Tim Kelly, and a variety of others we need. And of those here on earth now, by the grace of God, still with us, uh, Ray Sasicki and uh, Emily Selway, uh, we also have uh, Mary, uh, Mary Apria, and a variety of other, many good people. Pray for them all, please. Thank you very much for your charity. Absolutely. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.